0: Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm Elizabeth, a marathoner, running coach, and answer seeker. When I became a new runner at the age of 29, I had so many questions, but it felt like I was on my own to figure out all of the answers. So now I'm here to answer all your running questions to help make you a better, smarter, faster runner. There's no question too simple and no topic too complex. So let's get started. My guest this week is a returning guest to the show, Steph Natchuk, a.k.a. Steph, the runner's dietitian. Steph was first a guest on the early, one of the very earliest episodes of season one, talking about running and weight loss. So if you haven't heard that conversation, you should definitely check it out. But this time she is back to talk to us about body composition, which is probably what you're actually talking about when you talk about weight loss. In this conversation, we talk about what body composition is, what we really mean when we try to recomp our bodies, strategies that you can use when you are actually trying to do some sort of body composition work. There is a lot in this episode for runners of all experience levels and abilities, and I think you'll really enjoy Steph's expertise of over a decade of working with athletes in this space. Steph, the runner's dietitian,
1: welcome back to the show. I'm excited to have you here again. Thank you so much for having me. I am really excited to be back to record another episode with you.
0: So it's been about a year since we last talked. Our first conversation was an episode on weight loss and running. It's a great conversation. If you hadn't had a chance to check it out, I definitely recommend it. You will probably learn a bit more about weight loss than you thought you were going to on that topic, but tell us what you've been up to in the year since we last spoke.
1: Yeah. So it's been an exciting year, um, you know, on the business side and on the personal side. So on the business side, I've, you know, continued to grow and expand my offerings and where I'm able to work with and reach people by turning my one-on-one program into a course. Uh, So that's been really great. I have got a brand new beautiful website that I'm so excited about. And then on the personal side, I actually got married in 2021 as well. So lots of changes. Congratulations. Thank you.
0: I also know you redid your kitchen. I did see that.
1: Yes, yes. Oh, goodness. How could I forget about the kitchen reno? Yeah, that was that was an undertaking. That was a bigger project than the wedding, honestly.
0: <laughs> it really is. It really is. Um, well, today we're talking about body composition and I slightly misunderstood misunderstood, a topic that there's a lot of misinformation around, disinformation. But let's get started. And you just go ahead and tell us, what is body composition?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I I love that we're having this conversation because I actually talk about body composition a lot far more than I ever mention the word weight or weight loss in my content that I produce. And there's a good reason for it, which I know we're going to get into, which is why we're having this chat today. But basically body composition is taking your total body weight and breaking it down into what that weight is made of. So what makes up your total weight? And it's the composition of the different types of tissues, body tissues that add all up to the total number that we see on the scale. So breaking that down, we've got, of course, body fat, and then we have our fat-free mass. Now, all fat-free mass isn't going to just be muscle. We aren't just made of muscle and fat. We also have bones. We have organs. We have water. We have lots of other things. That all, though, is considered our fat-free mass. So when you're doing a lot of different body composition uh, tests, they'll sort of split it into fat mass and fat-free mass, and altogether that equals our body composition breakdown. That
0: is fascinating. And I think when people hear body composition, they really only consider fat, the fatty free tissue. They're not thinking about the muscle and the bone and the water yes. and that your yep. brain and your organs also take up what your body is composed of. Because we tend to simplify things down to their basic components. And they say, well, it's either
1: muscle or it's fat. There is a lot more to it than just that. Absolutely. And even then, you know, when we look at things like body fat we have you know our subcutaneous fat which is the fat that just lives sort of underneath the skin and then we have our visceral fat which is the fat that's stored kind of deeper in and around the abdominal cavity so even when we look at body composition you know it's not just even about total body fat percentage of someone might have it's also the distribution of that fat and the potential you know health impacts that that might have for someone
0: So what influences our body composition? What are the factors that determine what we're predisposed to be made of?
1: Lots of things. So many factors can influence body composition. You know, yes, 100% our physical activity habits and our nutrition habits are going to play a role to an extent. But even taking that out of the equation, you know, we look at things like our gender, You know, there are significant gender differences between what a uh, sort of normal or ideal or even unhealthy body fat percentage or body composition might be. Um, For example, women have, you know, 10 to 13% of just simply essential body fat that's required to maintain normal hormone levels. Men on the other hand, that's only about two to 5% essential fat. So there's really, you know, a 10% difference you could say between what would be considered normal or ideal between men and women. Of course, body composition can also be influenced by hydration. And if you've ever gotten your body fat testing done, then you'll know that there are specific instructions around hydration, How much water to drink and when leading up to getting tests like that done, because so much of our body, especially our fat free mass, um, is made up of water. Age can also play a role. You know, as we get older, we can see a uh, sort of expected increase in body fat percentage with, with age. Some of this can be a little bit of a uh, use it or lose it scenario in terms of losing muscle mass and gaining some fat mass as we get older. Uh, you know, people who are regularly strength training or staying active as they get older, some of that normal decline can be offset with uh, regular strength training. However, there is a little bit of a normal shift in body composition as part of that aging process. Of course, we also have uh, genetics that play a significant role in body composition at baseline, and then also as a response to training. So there are genes that can influence our um, response to exercise in terms of metabolism, energy usage, and body fat changes, body composition changes with exercise as well as genetics that can influence our baseline fitness level, our response to training, you know, how fast we get results from our training and our ability to gain muscle and strength. So there's so many things that go into our body composition. It's not really just about like how much we exercise or what we're eating.
0: I'm sure many of the listeners have seen those body, I don't know if you call them body charts, where they say, oh, there are generally three different body types. You have mesomorphs, Ect- endomorphs and ectomorphs, and broadly speaking, it's people who are naturally very lean and have trouble putting on um, muscle mass, people who are kind of in the middle, and then people who are naturally on the, you know, st- stockier side, people who can gain muscle mass really easily. Is that true?
1: Yeah, I mean, to a point, I don't know that it would be fair to necessarily say that there are three distinct categories that all people fall into. But people do naturally come in all different shapes and sizes. So while I would be sort of hesitant, kind of in my day to day practice, to give someone a label of "you are a ectomorph" or "you are a mesomorph," I do think we need to have an understanding and appreciation that people do come in a variety of different body types, uh, body shapes and sizes, and that simply changing something about your nutrition or fitness habits will maybe not give you a completely different physique uh, because we are playing with you know those genetics of of what our natural frame is is looking like. And on that note too when we talk about something like body fat percentage, I think it's also important to understand that there is no general, um, you know, perfect body fat percentage that guarantees optimal health or performance for everybody. You know, I mentioned the essential fat percentage that, that female athletes need, for example, you know, there may be someone who falls into the lower end of that range that has perfectly normal, healthy hormone function. They just naturally have a lower body fat percentage. Whereas the next athlete, maybe they do have a higher body fat percentage than 13%, but they're seeing hormone disruption because that's too low for them. So, you know, even as we can see that people come in all different shapes and sizes, what's best for us in terms of our body composition is also going to vary a little bit person to person.
0: How long does it take to actually make significant changes to your body composition? If I wanted to build muscle or lose fat, how long does that process typically take? And I, of course, know that there are a lot of like factors and timelines to consider, but what are we talking about here?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, to, to sort of think about it as a, it's a long-term ongoing process of changing body composition, you know, um, in terms of like data or, or sort of research on how long it takes to make changes. Again, it depends on where you're coming from, uh, how trained you are going into that body composition process, but generally speaking, you know, like one or 2% body fat change per month, is considered pretty darn good. So this is why we don't recommend doing body composition assessments too often. Like not don't get on your body fat percent scale every week sort of looking for those those ongoing changes because it is a very long process. Now, someone who is starting out, you know, very new runner has really not a lot of history of exercise, just taking up the sport, you know, certainly they are going to see changes more quickly as an untrained person. If you have a very long uh, history of being a runner, you've got tons of experience under your belt and you're looking to just change that final one or 2%, that's where it's going to be more difficult for you. You know, when you're already highly trained, those extra advantages, those extra edges are just a little bit harder to achieve.
0: When runners talk about body composition, weight loss, tends to inevitably come into the conversation. And when we talk about weight loss, we're not talking about, I want to lose muscle mass. I want to lose bone density. We're talking about fat loss. But oftentimes people also say, I want to lose fat and gain muscle at the same time while I am also going through this training process for my half marathon or my marathon, or, you know, or they have this goal. Uh, body recomposition is, seems to be a very trendy thing Lose fat, gain muscle, become your best athletic self. That seems like a really big ask for your body to do that at the same time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, ag- again, this is why we have to look at where someone is at right now in terms of their experience and their fitness level and their current body composition before we could say yes or no, or maybe is it possible to achieve all of these things simultaneously? You know, if you are someone who is coming in as a brand new runner, you know, you're, you're a beginner to the sport, you've, you've never trained before, then chances are you probably will see some changes in your body composition, maybe, and your weight, and your performance as you get ready for that race. Whereas for other people, if you already have a lot of experience under your belt, then it's gonna be harder. You know, It's harder to go from you know 20% body fat to 15% body fat than it is to go from 40% to 35. And so it's not that it's impossible to achieve all of those things at the same time, it just depends on the person and, and sort of be specific to that person. What I will say, though, about that is that you know specific interventions that are targeted at weight loss are probably not going to get you the performance advantages and the body composition that you're looking for long term. What I really like to do is encourage people to reevaluate their relationship with the scale and reevaluate the relationship that they have with checking their weight as a key marker or indicator of performance. Um, or results, you know, success or or however you want to describe it, because it can be incredibly misleading. Like you said, you know, you're looking at changing body composition. You don't want to be losing muscle mass and maybe gaining fat mass. And this is where we can get into some of the really interesting uh, research that's been done looking at meal timing strategies to optimize body composition for people who are doing a lot of training. You know, if we are under fueling and not eating enough around the time that we're most active. You know, we're doing a lot of fasted training. We are intermittent fasting and we're working out in the morning. We're not eating until several hours after that workout, but then we're eating thousands of calories between say noon and 8 PM. There's this huge disconnect between when we need the fuel and when we're actually consuming it, this can actually lead to, Um, disadvantages from body composition perspective so people may see some weight loss however it's more likely to be muscle loss and maybe even body fat gain even though their their weight is heading in the direction they think that it should their body composition is actually not uh, benefiting from this so we don't want to be too tied to the number that we're seeing on the scale because things that we do that focus too much on weight loss may not getting may not be getting us where we want to go in terms of our body composition and then ultimately our performance. Because when we lose muscle, we're for sure going to lose performance.
0: When you look at elite runners, and I don't often encourage anybody to try to mimic what an elite runner is doing. But it's very hard when you see elite runners on the star line of major races and they all are standing there and they're all these lithe gazelle-like people and they have low body fat percentages and they are lean and they have muscle definition, but they're not bulky. They look rather homogenous. Although if you look closely, you can see variation between them. It's very easy for the everyday runner like you or me to think that in order to run fast, we need to achieve that specific body composition. And I'm going to point to elite runners as being a really good example of why genetics plays such an important part in what we look like and also how we ultimately can perform.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, too, on that note, you know, before we get into some of the details around the genetic side of things, because that is really interesting, but we also don't always know what's going on behind the scenes for some of these athletes. And in the last couple of years, more and more and more stories have been coming out of, you know, particularly female athletes who have been struggling with eating disorders, struggling with chronic injuries that are almost completely destroying their careers to try and achieve this very look that we all think comes so naturally to them and so you know it's it's a combination of that that pressure to sort of fit in with the look of the running community but then also some maybe not so um not so great coaching practices and and not so great um you know staff um beliefs around what runners should look like and you know weight equaling performance and we now know so many things aren't the case but it takes time for that culture to really shift so i'm, I'm really i'm looking ahead to the coming years and i think we're going to see a lot more diversity in terms of uh body shape and sizes getting into elite sport because we now understand that not everyone has to look a certain way to perform However, you know, when we kind of boil it down and look at the genetics of it, there are some some genes that have been identified that look at uh, fitness level, you know, and and there's really two different things that we're looking at here. There's baseline fitness, so VO2 max, for example, and then there's our um, response to training, how quickly we see improvements when we actually go through a training program. So baseline VO2 max, there's a gene, it's the as 2 gene. And so it has been um, you know, established as being able to predict or, or sort of be involved in uh, how good our VO2 max is sort of coming into the sport of running or, or coming into endurance sport. So there's a specific variant of this gene that studies have found in 95.5% of elite endurance athletes. <laughs> And there was another study that was done that looked at um, Olympians, and all of the Olympians that were in the study had this specific gene variant. But I don't want that to discourage people, you know, because I, I don't want people to hear me say that and think, oh, well, if I don't have the gene variant, then oh, what's the point of even, you know, trying?" Because there's also it, it's a combination of yes, baseline um, performance and the, that genetic sort of blessing that some people enjoy but it's also our response to training. So it doesn't mean that you still can't perform unbelievably well. You may just have to work a little bit harder and it may take you a little bit longer to get to that point with your performance. Um, But yeah, so so it definitely does sort of give, it, it lends the idea that there is a certain genetic look that you need to become a runner. But I think more and more we're seeing that the internal pressure within that sport to fit in is sort of just as toxic as it is to those of us who are on the outside looking in.
0: And I do understand if it were my job to perform at this super high level, that if I was being pressured to look a certain way, you know, this is your paycheck on the line and it doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it okay. But I think it's easy for us to look out and say, well, they should have just said, no, they should have just said, no, I need to do what's best for my body. But uh, you know, I get it. If it's either look a certain way to try to perform a certain way or else you don't get paid Those risks for some people are worth taking, even if they do end badly.
1: Yeah. And this is also assuming that all of these individuals who are are part of these, you know, toxic coaching programs know what's best for them to even be able to speak up and say, right? Because when you're in it and this is normal and everyone around you is doing these things and believe these things, um, you know, it, it's not necessarily an assumption that we can make that the athletes on the inside are, are saying, oh, no, this is terrible. And we know it's terrible. I don't necessarily know that that's the case, because you're looking at people who a, a lot of them are quite young. Where would they have gotten this kind of health education and information? I mean, you know, I'm in my 30s. I've had years of, of understanding and learning in it and all of these things. 17 year old Steph would not have had <laughs> anywhere near this amount of, um, you know, self-advocacy available to me.
0: I hear a lot of talk from runners who I, ha- I work with or who I have conversations with talk about, well, my goals were X, Y, Z performance wise, and I'd like to lose the last five to 10 pounds. And there's, it's always <laughs> like, a, I want to I you know, run an X time in this. I want to get faster at this. I'd love to be able to do this and blah, blah, blah. Oh, and I also want to lose that last five, 10 pounds. And it's always that really, For sure. that last five to 10 pounds. It can't be yep. that important,
1: yep. can it? <laughs> well, and and I mean, yeah, Per my, my very personal opinion is no. Very personal opinion is no, absolutely not. I, again, because when we look at body composition and we look at that body fat to muscle sort of ratio and shifting that, the number on the scale, if we're only talking about five pounds, maybe 10 pounds, the number on the scale may not change at all. And I've I've got a a good story about this that that I want to share. So a client of mine, you know, his goal, of course, was exercise, healthy eating, body composition, all that stuff. And, you know, six weeks went by and he was feeling frustrated because the scale had not changed yet. You know, he wasn't seeing any movement on the scale when he was checking his weight. And this is also why I don't recommend checking your weight all that frequently, because these these changes are slow. But he, he shared this story with me, uh, on one of our coaching calls where he had his, uh, his kid in, in one arm, he was holding his kid and then he had a a cup of coffee. He was walking into his house in the other hand, his pants fell down to his ankles as he, and he couldn't do anything about it. And and so it was just like, you know, your, your body is, is changing. Your waist circumference is changing. Things are moving, you know, in, in a, a healthier direction for you. And no, the number on the scale did had not moved a single pound at that point. So I really want people to disconnect from using the, the weight and the number on the scale as their main indicator of success, because if a month goes by and you don't see that scale move, you're going to give up. You're going to stop trying, stop doing the things that you're doing, uh, not realizing that it's such a, a long process. We all, you know, sort of have, have heard so many times, I, I remember hearing this for years and years and years, that muscle weighs more than fat muscle is more dense than fat, right? All of that. And everyone knows that at sort of a surface level, you know, there aren't a lot of people who haven't heard that term before, but we have a really hard time taking that and applying that to ourselves and, and sort of understanding what that means in terms of the changes and the results that we would see when we start, you know, say a new, a new running or fitness program. But it's really, I, I think for me, it's sort of why I love working with runners and why I actually have really sort of focused my business on being a very running focused, specific business is because I like that we uh, so easily can set more processed goals, more task related goals, like training for a race, rather than have it just be about changing body composition and weight, because those things do move slowly. And so instead shifting the focus to, okay, I want to get ready for this marathon, we understand that getting ready for a big race takes so much time and we are willing to give it the time and the respect that it deserves to to trust that process of training. And so if we can sort of get into the zone and the mindset around that, it makes it easier to sort of sell someone on the fact that it takes that much time and that much process and the daily things that you do to get the end result. You don't know that you can run a marathon on the very first day you go for a run, but you have to trust, As part of that training process, that when the day rolls around, you'll be able to do it. And it's the same kind of concept that applies to changing our body composition. When you're in it, you can't see it, you you feel like nothing's happening. But then at the end, you kind of can look around be like, Oh, wow, look what I've accomplished. But if you're trying to run a marathon every weekend to make sure you can run a marathon every to make sure you can run that marathon, you are not going to be able to run the marathon when you need to.
0: I've said this a couple times. I don't know if I said this before on the podcast, but I've definitely said this to some of my athletes. If your ultimate goal is a physique goal, if all you really care about is what your body composition is going to look like, running, endurance running, is not your sport. <laughs> If you really genuinely only care about what your look, if what your end result is from a body composition perspective, you are much better served to be in the gym lifting heavy weights. Yes, cardio is important, but running 40, 50, 60, 70 miles per week is not going to get you the body that you're probably looking for
1: no and and not for a lot of people now again you know we can always bring it back to genetics we can always bring it back to how different people are going to respond to different things you know there's that person who they take up running and they just you know seemingly effortlessly lose a whole bunch of weight and and there's sort of this success story that gets paraded around online of of how great running is for weight loss but behind every one of those people there's another 10 who took up running and didn't really see any weight change so you know it's always going to be very individual specific but yeah absolutely i mean running is a it's a performance focused sport right it's not getting on a bodybuilding stage it's not having to have a certain body fat percentage in order to make or break um, that competition, it's really about performing. And so we need to fuel our bodies in a way that are going to, that is going to allow us to perform fuel, our recovery, make sure we're getting the calories that we need to put in the work so that we can get to that end result of being able to complete that race. And if we're too focused on the calorie restriction and the carb restriction that we need to get this, this incredibly lean physique, then we're probably going to wind up under fueled. We're going to have a relative energy deficiency. We're going to wind up injured, burnt out. We're just not going to be able to pull it off. It's very tempting though, to see what a certain
0: online person looks like who is selling a diet or exercise plan and say, well, if I just download their meal plan and eat just like they do, I'll look exactly like they do. And all the hard work's taken out of my hands. First of all, in in a a lot of states, um, the only person who's actually allowed to sell meal plans or provide meal plans is a registered dietitian. So they better have that RD credential next to their name. (laughs) But this is not this is not how first of all, having somebody do the hard work for you is not necessarily a good thing. I think you should be involved in the process, but trusting some random influencer who looks a certain way is not a good way to figure out what you should be eating or exercising?
1: Well, no, absolutely not. And I mean, especially if you're also looking at it from the perspective of, like you said, and and I have so many clients as well, who it's, they wanna be able to perform. They wanna sign up for these races. They wanna go through the process of training. They wanna earn those medals that we all love to to have, but they also want the the body recomposition, the fat loss and, and all of that too. And so, you know, putting your trust in someone who, isn't taking into account the fact that you're a runner, isn't taking into account the fact that you need a lot more fuel than someone who's just, you know, going to the gym five days a week and lifting weights, and also taking into consideration some of these gender and genetic differences. So, you know, I've seen, let's say a male coach who doesn't know that female athletes need a much higher body fat percentage, you know, like I said, about 10% more body fat than the average male athlete in order to maintain normal hormone function so they're trying to coach their female runners down to this body fat percentage that would be only really healthy or or plausible for a male athlete and of course you're going to start running into problems not only with sustainability and being able to actually stick to that program but also in terms of the negative impacts of having just striving for those types of results so it's really sort of a lose-lose all around that you're not going to get the um the performance advantage, you're not going to get the result that you're looking for, but you also are made to feel like there's something wrong with you because the program is not working for you, but that program isn't made for you. That that's not something that's that anyone could expect, you know, who has a little bit of knowledge in the area, but you're hundred percent right that, um, you know, in, in most places, it does need to be a registered dietitian providing what we call medical nutrition therapy which would be providing a specific nutrition plan for a specific diagnosis or, or condition. When you start to look at providing general nutrition advice, you start to look at, get into a little bit less regulated territory. There, these things are hard to define. You know, what's considered general nutrition advice compared to medical nutrition advice and, and what kind of diagnoses would someone need to have in order to, to sort of fit into one category or the other. Unfortunately, because the fitness and nutrition industries are just so widely unregulated in most places, uh, it's really on the consumer to kind of do their homework and make sure that they're putting their trust and their money into someone who does have enough experience and credentials in what they're looking for. So, you know, it would be great if we could rely on external uh, governing bodies to make sure that everyone is only getting access to safe and, you know, qualified um, advice and coaching, but that's just not the reality. So it really is on the the individual to have to do their research and do their homework on that one.
0: That seems like a huge ask for somebody who's just looking for help because they are struggling with what to eat.
1: Yes, <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, when we sort of, we had spoken already about sort of this, this influencer, um, you know, sort of reality that we live in with social media. And it's, it's really easy to sort of get sucked in or, or drawn into to someone who looks a certain way and decide, okay, well, you know, especially if someone that person maybe has before and after photos, um, where they look this way, then they look this way now. And okay, yeah, that I, I would also like to have that, please sign me up. Um, it just really can get us into a lot of trouble because people need to be educated on what to look for in a nutrition or fitness coach. People need to be educated on what credentials are legitimate um, wherever they happen to live, because it also can vary from state to state and country to country. Um, And then understanding what a good quality nutrition or fitness program looks like, so that if you're sort of given something or see something, you can sort of recognize it as being legit or not. It's a huge ask. It it really is and it's hard for, you know, people to really navigate that because not the person with the most Instagram followers doesn't necessarily equal the person with the best advice.
0: Yes, or the person with a six-pack or the person with the yeah, whatever the thing is. And there are a couple um pieces of, you know, breaking News that we were and I were chatting about earlier. One was a piece about how a lot, uh, how rampant steroid use is amongst fit fluencers, bodybuilders, like people with Instagram accounts and multi million dollar fitness plan programs are all on steroids. Um, and the other one was an influ, or former influencer, diet and fitness influencer in Texas being sued by the state basically for, I don't know, the on b- poor business practices, misrepresenting or not delivering, um, telling eating disorder um clients that you actually be, you know, here's a low calorie diet to help you achieve your body goals. And it is a completely when you get to the Instagram world, and I say this as somebody who is on Instagram a lot, there it's like the wild love west. Instagram. You can kinda <laughs> I love Instagram and it's how it's it's helped me build what I do today. And that's great. Yeah. But yeah. but it's so easy for charlatans and shysters and people who look good to make a lot of money preying on the fears and insecurities of people who are just looking for help.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, you look at something like steroid use and, you know, even to less less of an extreme, but, but probably the same level of harm would be, you know, just the supplements that people are taking and selling, but then sort of, you know, putting out this persona that it's all just sort of hard work and, and diet. And I mean, you know, let's let's even assume that all of these images that we see are even real people's real bodies, never mind the, the filters and the Photoshop that can happen or even just the posing in specific photos for angles and, and things like that that can be incredibly misleading, sort of made to sell a product that in reality doesn't exist bringing it sort of all the way back to, you know, looking at these normal or ideal, um, body composition, body fat percentages for men and women, you know, the, the look that is trying to be achieved by so many people is not necessarily a healthy ideal or healthy goal. You know, we look at very visible muscle definition, very visible abs, Um, for a lot of people that will require a body fat percentage that may not be healthy for them. And if we're always only striving for this physique, if we're only sort of striving for this look that, you know, looks great in an Instagram photo, gets us lots of likes and attention online, uh, we really can be uh, doing huge damage to our mental health, our physical health, our ability to perform when we want to. So for runners, especially, you know, for runners who want to be able to run faster, be stronger, stay injury free, all of those things, you know, getting away from this idea that lower weight is better, getting away from this idea that lower body fat is better, uh, really focusing in on fueling your body and training in a way that's going to get you across the finish line faster, not necessarily just seeing the lowest number on the scale. That's what we really want to uh you know encourage people towards.
0: Now, to be fair, there are people who for whatever reason want to lose <clears throat> weight. You lose excess fat, probably not lose muscle tissue. There are people who are looking at their body and saying, look, you know what? I understand that the way my body is currently composed, I don't think it's probably doing me any favors from a health perspective long-term. I would think I'd be happier if I were able to lose some weight, But I, I, and I was thinking about this and reflecting on the way that my messaging comes across in in my podcast and what I do. It may seem like I'm trying to tell people it's never okay to lose weight. You should always just feel for performance. And if you're trying to lose weight, that's a bad thing it's not what I'm trying to say. It's not what you're trying to say. It's not what any of the people that I've had in the show are trying to say. There are genuinely good reasons or times or ways to engage in weight loss or body recomposition practices. We're just saying, don't do it while you're training for a marathon.
1: Yeah. And, and what's so interesting about that is, is, you know, a lot of the the practices and strategies that are great for performance are also great for improving and finding our best body composition. Now, will it be the body fat percentage of those Olympic athletes? No, it won't. Well, maybe it will be if you're really lucky, but for me, I know (laughs) for me, it certainly won't be. And I'm okay with that. Um, but the, the habits and the practices and the, uh, you know, strategies around training and meal timing and meal composition and all of that stuff, I'm using those same tactics for improving performance, but also body composition too, because they're honestly one in the same. Now, yes, we would in, incorporate, you know, that small calorie deficit for some fat loss, um, you know, in, in those specific situations. But for a lot of people where the real struggle is with the disconnective meal timing, they're eating too many calories late in the day, not enough around the time that they're training, fixing up their meal timing strategy is going to give them better performance, but also in the long run, improve body composition. So I think that what we need to do is let go of the weight body composition goals being at the forefront, trust in the process of the things that we do to get better performance results, and then see how our body composition improves along the way with that. Because they're not different necessarily. They're not opposing ideas. We just need to give it enough time and enough, uh, Patients in order to actually see that result come.
0: Let's talk about meal timing and nutrient timing and all of that. Cause I got a really good question recently that the person said, I eat enough carbs during the day. Like they said, they represented that they were getting enough carbohydrate in their diet during their day. And they asked, given that, how important was it to actually get that post run or post workout Refueling of carbs and protein in, or it, can they just deal with having their carbs the rest of the day? Or should they actually try to get that post run carbon protein in? And I said, actually, it is important. I'm glad you're getting enough carbs in during the day, but the timing of this yep. is really important. And I think it's one example, and you can talk more about nutrient timing and why it's important to, beyond the are you eating enough? Are you eating enough of these certain groups? When you eat is really important.
1: It is. And, and I think that it's, it's great to first focus on, you know, getting enough energy overall throughout the day, right? We, we want to make sure that we're approaching this strategically in creating a nutrition plan in that it's not too overwhelming, too complicated, too much all at once for people. So great. You know, the fact that you're eating enough carbohydrates in that 24 hour period is phenomenal. Unfortunately, though, our bodies sort of clock doesn't reset at midnight every night, the way we like to break time down into 24 hour periods, right? We think about how many calories we get per day. Our body is in a constant ever moving flow of time. There's no day 24 hour chunks. Like your your muscles aren't like, oh no, it's fine. She's gonna eat later. So we're good now. (laughs) Like it's, it's just, it's about energy availability in the moment. And so from a pre-workout fueling perspective, this is really, really important. You need the energy available in your muscle cells when you need it. If it's not there, we're going to have to change to alternate sources of fuel, which of course, you know, is going to be amino acids uh, from muscle tissue that are going to go to fuel those high intensity activities. On the flip side, when it comes to the post-workout refuel, This is also really key because our muscle cells are most able to absorb glycogen and refuel right in that post-workout time frame. So I, I say this a lot to my clients. I don't, I don't want to like you know pressure anyone or freak anyone out, thinking they need to be like starting the protein shake as they're walking off the gym floor into the change room. Like it's not quite that specific, but there is a window where we ha- we see the most rapid glycogen uptake into muscles, which then is going to help us refuel more effectively for our next workouts. So you know it's great that we're looking at okay in the course of a day, am I getting enough? But you know kind of tightening up the timing of those meals can be even more beneficial, you know, from a performance perspective, but then also the results that we're looking for. We don't want to just think about it as our 24 hour energy availability, energy balance, but it's sort of like hour by hour. Are you matching up and meeting your body's energy needs over the course of the day? Not just the big picture. So It's a lot for people, you know, like it can be a little bit more difficult to uh, start being that detail oriented that specific about meal timing. My general rule of thumb, though, for anyone that that I sort of work with or or encounter looking at meal timing is I want to see runners eating at least three meals a day, so certainly not less than three meals a day. And then two or three snacks sort of as needed, you know, in between looking at pre, you know, pre-workout, depending on the timing of, of your um, of your training sessions, whether it's morning or afternoon or evening. Never ever though do I wanna see someone eating less than three meals a day. That's, that's sort of my, my absolute minimum.
0: <laughs> what about for people who are getting two workouts in a day, whether it's two runs or they're running in the morning and going to the gym and strength training in the evening, what are the nutrient timing considerations for those two workouts?
1: Yeah. So basically, you know, just right off the top, you're going to need more fuel. You're going to need more fuel. Um, it's, it's not a matter of like, Oh, I'm going to lose more weight by working out more often. No, you need to eat to account for the fact that you're now training twice a day. That's really, really important for making sure that we're optimizing Uh, you know, energy availability, fuel availability, and then also the results that you can get from that training. Otherwise, you know, you're kind of just spending a lot of time putting in the work, but you're really not getting the results that you're hoping for because you're not fueling adequately. So let's say, okay, for we'll just sort of take you through an example day. You're waking up in the morning, you're going to do a run first thing, and then you're going to hit the gym at four o'clock after work before dinner. So you wake up in the morning, we're going to have a small pre-workout snack. That's going to be our carb uh, fuel up before we go for that run. Then our post-workout meal, that's going to be our protein-carbohydrate combination. That's going to be what I would call breakfast. And then we're probably going to want to have a small snack in between breakfast and lunch, depending, of course, how many hours we have between those two meals lunch is going to be a mixed meal that can be our protein carbohydrate and some vegetables would be great too if we could fit those in and then we're going to want to plan another high carb snack you know let's say 60 to 90 minutes before that four o'clock gym session so again we want to fuel up before we hit the gym because if we eat lunch and then we have nothing and you know four hours potentially between that workout and training then we're missing that opportunity to fuel up and really give it our best when we go for that strength training workout later in the day. And then after the gym, then we would have our post-workout dinner and that's going to be our refuel. And then if you're hungry, you may also need an evening snack a little bit later depending on the time frame between dinner and bed. So you can see that, you know, very quickly, we're reaching eating six times a day, no problem.
0: <laughs> for a lot of people, that seems like a lot more food than they're probably used to eating because of their absolutely beliefs about food or um, intermittent fasting is so trendy right now. And I don't, I don't know where it necessarily came from, but the ability to survive on very little food is not something you should actively try to practice when you are chasing performance goals or health goals or really any goals.
1: Well, yeah. And, and this is the thing that I find so interesting about it is, you know, you, you sort of lay that out for for people and, and sort of show them this is what you ideally would eat in a day. And sometimes they'll, they'll sort of balk like, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine eating that much food. But what happens is that when we're under fueling, and I see this so often with, with the people that I um, work with, is they come they come to start working with me and they're eating so little during the day but then they're so hungry in the evenings (laughs) they're starving. So they get home from work and then they're ravenous. From the time they get home from work, they walk in the door until they go to bed at night, they're eating all this food in the evening. And so it seems wild that we would just sort of front load those calories and eat more during the day. But what happens is when we fuel properly earlier in the day, when we need the calories, when we need the energy, we aren't as hungry later on. So then we're not eating You know a big plate at dinner and then we're we're back in the kitchen an hour later kind of looking for something else and then a few hours later we're sort of back looking for something else and and just sort of snacking all throughout the night because what people think is oh my gosh i'm going to eat all that during the day but then i'm also going to feel powerless around this evening snacking but when we actually fuel properly we get enough protein we get enough carbohydrates earlier we realize that we actually can be quite satisfied and we're not starving in the evening. So it is a lot of food, but when we're looking at, uh, nutritious high volume, high fiber foods, uh, yeah, it's a lot, but it it, uh, is a lot better for performance and for body composition versus eating all of our calories late in the day.
0: For people it's what you've described. I know it's very, very common that restrict even unintentionally restrict during the day, maybe even go far as say binging at night. And, I think a lot of people would push back on that and say, well, I don't binge every night. So if I eat that much during the day, I, that's too much food on a good day. I'm sure you must hear that sure. too.
1: Yeah, for sure. But I, and I think that the, the behind the scenes sort of unintended consequences of this sort of cyclical, you know, under eat, over eat, under eat, over eat, whether it's happening on a daily basis or maybe just a few times a week, you know, however, whatever the frequency might be, Is that what people don't realize is the performance detriments and the body composition detriments that they're encountering as a result of those practices. So under eating during the day, trying to exercise and, you know, burn all these calories without fueling properly our resting metabolism will decrease, right? When our body is not getting enough fuel, our metabolism doesn't just keep chugging along at the same rate. It starts to try and preserve energy, right? It starts to try and save calories. So our resting energy expenditure is going to decrease. What we also see is a decrease in exercise motivation. Again, why would the brain send us out to go run around a whole bunch and burn all these extra calories when there's not enough fuel coming in? So workout quality, really can also start to diminish we aren't burning as many calories as we think we are during those workouts and and this is you know completely unintended we're, we're not meaning to, for that to happen but it's just sort of a side effect of under fueling so then when we do overeat and I'll sort of put that in quotations because you know hard to sort of quantify that but when we do then overeat the calorie excess that we're taking in it's that much easier to hit that calorie excess And then of course the cycle continues where we're not getting the energy output that we want. And then we're, we're overdoing it on the intake side. And this happens a lot for people who are trying to also follow very low calorie diets is that now their calorie burn is lower than what we would have expected it to be. So it's that much easier for them to see that weight gain or fat gain when they do eat. There's also implications from a hormone perspective. The, hormones that regulate hunger and fullness, when we're in that sort of um, back and forth with undereating and overeating, is that then when we do eat, our body is sending out more of those hunger signals and it's harder for us to st- get full. And we're more likely to overeat and feel that we need to reach that point of feeling uncomfortable because the brain is having a harder time reaching that level of satisfaction. Because again, the brain doesn't know the difference between a true famine and a self-imposed famine (laughs) like it doesn't know that it's supposed to be losing fat and that's why we're doing this it all it understands is that it's not getting enough energy and there's really high demands being placed and there's stress being placed on it so it really um you know your best bet is to look at when you're the most active throughout the day when are you timing those workouts and making sure that your meal pattern is optimized around the time that you need that fuel
0: can we talk about catabolism and anabolism? Am I saying that correctly?
1: Catab- <laughs> um, I the, In my Canadian accent, I would say catabolism, but I don't know if that's right either. <laughs>
0: catab- catab- catabolism, yes. that's how I read it. Um, basically, the two states of either breaking down or building up tissue. And this is yes. something, I, something I trot out as an explainer when people ask me, why they can't run fasted and i say well one of the aside from all the other many things that running fasted won't do for you one of the things it will do is it will extend the catabolic which is the muscle to the tissue breakdown period until you start eating and then your body will say ah cool building blocks switch to building mode but you are from a body composition standpoint if your goal is to maintain muscle mass Mm -hmm. you do not want to be in a catabolic state for longer than you need to be, because your body's going to keep digging and digging and digging away at that precious muscle
1: tissue. Exactly, exactly. And this is something that is so relevant, especially for distance runners, right? You know, people who are doing half marathons, marathons, ultra marathons, like this become triathlons, right? This becomes so, so key because even in the moment of doing those prolonged Uh, Training sessions, you know, several hours that people are spending exercising, we are gonna run low on glycogen. And when we run low on glycogen, we are going to wind up needing to dig into these amino acids, which are muscle tissue in order to fuel that activity. And so this is where we want to be really careful of like making sure that, yeah, we've got that pre-workout fuel up that we're doing, but for those longer sessions, we also need that intra workout fuel. We also need to make sure that we're taking enough along with us for the during period, because if we are trying to do, you know, a few hours of activity and just, you know, have a slice of toast (laughs) before we, (laughs) before we start doing that, it's just not going to be enough. And yeah. So, you know we want to really optimize our muscle preservation systems which is going to really come down to making sure the body has enough fuel we call it glycogen we want to spare spare the muscle tissue by having enough glycogen available in order to fuel the activities that we're doing Yeah. There's a lot
0: of sparing going on. You train at a low intensity to teach your body how to spare glycogen. And then you take the glycogen to, you know, use, use the glucose to spare the muscle tissue, right? It's all about choosing or, or helping your body choose the best pathway for it and saving the emergency pathway or the high cost pathway for later in general, when training, we don't really want to go down those paths.
1: No, we don't. And this is also where, you know, something else that I, I, I don't see around, uh, you know, talked about a lot is actually including something like BCAAs in your intra workout fueling for those very, very long workouts. So this is more for like, you know, I, I would try athletes or ultra marathoners who are going to be training for three hours or longer in a day or at a time, including those branched-chain amino acids to uh, give an alternate fuel source so that we're not digging into those amino acids from our muscle tissue. So that is kind of one strategy that would be specific to that population to again, help offset some of that catabolism that we don't want to encounter.
0: I'm glad that you brought up BCAAs because this is not food. I want to be very clear that BCAAs are not nutrition. They're not fuel, even though your body can use them for fuel, it's not a replacement for a meal your pre-run snack should not just be a teaspoon of Bacchus before you head out the door.
1: Yeah. And that's also the, the VCAs are also in conjunction with all the carbohydrates, the 30 to 60 grams of carbs per hour that you also need to be getting. It's not just, yeah, putting some in your water bottle and, and heading out.
0: <laughs> Something that I'm sure you also hear a lot is runners who are going through a really intense training cycle and are gaining weight or whatever they have decided that their body composition is changing in a way that they don't like. What do you tell
1: them? Yeah. So I think that really opens the door to have a good conversation about performance goals and weight goals. So, you know, say for example, somebody says, well, I want to train for this marathon and I want to run it in three hours, but I also want to lose 10 pounds. Okay. That's fine. But if you could run the marathon in three hours and have your weight, not change, Would you still want to run that marathon in three hours? Or do you want to run the marathon? Don't worry about how long it takes, but losing the 10 pounds is the priority. And and there's no wrong answer here, right? Like, I also want to make sure that people don't feel like there's any sort of judgment or uh, negativity around choosing the weight goal versus the performance goal. But I would want someone to really, you know, I want to have that clear conversation and be frank about both of those things may not happen for you it's unpredictable, right? What happens with the number on the scale when we get into something like training for a race, I have really no idea what's going to happen with someone's weight, which is why I don't like it as a primary metric of success, because you're looking at maybe this person as a, a, maybe they're fairly untrained runner. They're going to actually build some pretty good muscle just by training for that marathon, right? They haven't used those leg muscles. They have not been working those hips ever before. They might build muscle getting ready for this race. They're going to start strength training. You know, all these great things can happen as well. You know, maybe it is a meal timing issue that we can tighten up, which then is going to lead to some improvements in body composition. Again, a little bit unpredictable, but we also have to look at hydration. And, you know, when we look at fluid balance and hydration and, you know, Um, post workout, especially after an intense workout, inflammation and some fluid retention in the muscle or dehydration after a long run. There's so many things that can impact our weight day to day. And hydration is such a big part of that, that again, I I don't want to be, I I don't want to make any predictions or bold statements about what, what might happen with someone's body composition, other than hoping that we can get them to be a little bit less concerned about weight as they get ready for something like a marathon. It's important to kind of look at a, each individual person. I, I think I've said this so many times, like the, the person is an individual. Now, if somebody were uh, you know, coming to see me and they had low muscle mass, high body fat percentage, were fairly untrained, then I, I can say with pretty good confidence that you're gonna see some, some improvements in your body composition, some good change in your body composition as you take up this sport of running, as you start getting into it. But if someone has many, many races under their belt and they want to tweak their body composition while getting ready for this big upcoming race, that might be harder to achieve. You know, again, the, the more trained we are, the harder it can be to get those results. Finally. We've talked a lot about body composition and,
0: you know, finding the body composition that's appropriate for you. Kind of naturally, it sounds like it's a, it's normal for women to have a higher body fat percentage than men just to be healthy and function properly. We talked about going on lower calorie diets and your how your metabolism slows down to accommodate that. And so what I was thinking about when you specifically mentioned that was how many people say, well, I if I eat more than X, Y, Z, if I eat more than 1500 calories per day, I start gaining weight. I can only lose weight when I eat an absurdly low amount of calories, a thousand calories, 1200 calories, 1300 calories a day, because if I eat any more than that, I'm going to start gaining weight. And sometimes the way that we wish our body looked and what our body actually looks like when we are at our healthiest is going to be different. So if you... If your body doesn't look the way like it does on the swimsuit model, but it looks the way that it does, and you're healthy, that for some people is a very challenging thing to digest.
1: Yes, it, it can be, and I think that that's you know sort of a whole journey that we all need to go on with our relationship with exercise and food and our bodies and how much the media influences how we feel about ourselves i mean there's there's so much work that i think a lot of us men and women you know we we really focus a lot on females in this space around self-esteem and body image and, and that sort of idea but i think that men can be impacted to a significant degree as well um and and really understanding that sometimes what we see on Instagram, on the magazine covers on, on all of those things is a not reality, right? Airbrushing, Photoshop, posing, they don't even really look like that. (laughs) No one really actually looks like that. Um, But as well, you know, we talked about that, that suppression of metabolism that can happen with, you know, not fueling properly, not eating enough. And so the assumption is, oh, if I start eating the amount that you say I need to eat, I'm immediately going to gain a ton of weight. But that doesn't need to be the case. We can, you know, balance out fueling our bodies well, fueling our bodies properly and not seeing, uh, you know, significant weight gain by approaching it sort of in a strategic way. Again, not flip-flopping between 1200 calories and 3000 calories and 1200 calories and 3000 calories instead really approaching it with, you know, being mindful around meal timing and increasing calories slowly to get someone up to a level that is more nutritionally adequate. Because, you know, a 1500 calorie diet is very unlikely to contain all the nutrients we even need to be a healthy person. You know, if we look strictly at meeting the requirements for for different nutrients, we need to be eating about 1750 calories per day just to meet all of the recommended dietary intake, you know, amounts for, Calcium, magnesium, potassium, protein, like all of those sorts of things. So, you know, when we're following the extremely low calorie diets are also probably not nutritionally adequate either.
0: And lastly, you mentioned earlier the kind of red flags that one might see if they had the education to understand what they're seeing in a, an online meal plan or uh, some sort of macro plan or something that they downloaded off the internet or a Um, masquerading as not a diet, but is totally a diet online weight loss service, which we shall not name, but it's called Noom. Um, (laughs) Please don't sue me. Um, And if somebody is critically evaluating a plan or a, that they've been handed a meal plan, meal outline, they've been handed. What are some red flags? If you say, if it contains something like this, or if it says this, you should rethink that.
1: Yeah, I would say first and foremost, if you're being handed a very uh, lengthy list of bad foods, right, if, if immediately foods are being categorized as good, bad, eat this, don't eat that, on limit, off limit, because immediately there's going to be a limit to the sustainability of that plan, the length of time we could follow that plan for. Because now, if someone said to me, Steph, Here's your meal plan. You cannot eat chocolate ever again. It's off the. It's not on the meal plan. You can't have it. Okay, let's be honest. You know that's going to last. I don't know, 48 hours. (laughs) I might stick with that plan before it's out the window. So immediately, there's there's an expiration date on how long something like that's going to be sustainable. So the first thing I would definitely look for is making sure that there are no foods that are sort of off limits or bad or or things that you can't have at all, because what we really want to get away from is these these short-term diets, these short-term fixes. Instead, we want to learn how to eat in a way that is fueling our body properly, is satisfying, is enjoyable, and allows us to also navigate the training and the healthy eating side of our lives with the socializing side of our lives. Being able to navigate holidays and get-togethers and going out with friends and not feeling like we're off the program or sort of messing it all up because we, you know, or we have to socially isolate ourselves in those scenarios and we can't enjoy time with friends and family because we have to stick to this diet. So that's kind of the biggest thing. The other thing that would be a really, um, you know, sort of bid, big red flag would be as a runner, getting a program, getting a meal plan, getting something from someone who doesn't work with runners, you know, who doesn't understand the fueling needs of a runner, the the energy needs that a runner has. If you're instead being put on, I'll call it sort of a bodybuilder sort of style diet, where it's super, super high protein, super low carb, the assumption being made that you're spending five days a week just going to the gym and lifting weights, that's just not going to work. So we wanna stay away from, you know, these very low carb type of diet plans. Um, Definitely anything very low calorie, but anything that you, if you don't see potatoes, Pasta, bread, oatmeal, fruit, <laughs> rice. If you see none of those on your meal plan, walk away. It's not the meal plan for you as a runner. And
0: labeling, you said, you know, foods that are allowed or not allowed, but even labeling, oh, these are the good carbs or the bad carbs, or these are the good fats or the bad fats. Yeah. Like, there's, you know, fats are one thing, and there's different types of fats and all of that they say, oh, you can have yep. this source of carbohydrate, but not the Snickers bar. That's a bad source of carbohydrate. Well, to be completely fair, your body doesn't know the difference when it breaks it all down in your small intestine and sends it into your bloodstream.
1: Yeah. And especially to, you know, again, looking specifically at, at runners who are looking to perform well in their sport, you know, the, the sort of idea that for fueling during a workout, you also like shouldn't have sports drinks or shouldn't have gels or shouldn't use any of those types of products for fueling during a a workout. Um, is also something that you really want to steer clear from when you're looking for a coach in this space, because any you know good coach is going to be looking at performance and want to make sure that you're fueled properly. And so I don't want to see runners who are going out for a two hour long run and have been told they can only bring water, maybe a little bit of zero uh, sugar electrolyte replacement, but no carbs for these long runs, because you're just doing so much damage to the performance potential that you could have there. So, yeah, 100% and you know, we want to make sure that anything we're entering into any kind of program is teaching us good habits, teaching us skills, not just about here's a meal plan, follow it until you don't and then there's nothing after that. It's it's more about what can I learn from working with this person um, and really help you grow and evolve so that you can coach yourself one day and <laughs> you know, not not always need to have some external Um, resource for telling you what to eat and when it's about having an understanding of what your body needs
0: and I'll also say this as a running coach if if you listener has a running coach who has told you that you need to lose weight has put you on some sort of diet or is not telling you the importance of fueling before during and after your runs your coach does not know what they're doing and you should not be listening to them in general
1: we will find them
0: You know, I get asked about, oh, how do I lose weight? I'm like, I'm not even going to go there. I generally counsel before, during, and after nutrition. I am not going to tell you what to eat for dinner. It is so outside of my wheelhouse. But if your coach is actively trying to get you to lose weight, especially if you haven't asked them for weight loss advice, if they have not told you the importance of fueling during your long runs and your for your races, if they have told you what you should and should not be eating in general... Drop them, drop them like a hot potato, and then go eat the potato.
1: Yes, enjoy the potatoes. Oh, potatoes yes. get such a bad <laughs> reputation. Such a bad reputation. Those poor potatoes.
0: Love potatoes. <laughs> They're great. They're great. Well, Steph, thank you so much for coming back on. This was fascinating. Now I'm going to go look up that gene. That like, oh, uh, blessed be the VO2 max gene. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yes, absolutely. It is. It's very interesting. It's it's one area of nutrition science that I am absolutely fascinated by. So,
0: and I, again, we want to reiterate what you said before. If you are not genetically blessed to run or look like an elite athlete, that doesn't mean that you can't achieve unbelievable. Yeah. And like me, I mean, I'm never going to look like, you know, I'm never going to be five percent body, you know, 5% body fat ever. Um, It doesn't mean that you can't achieve unbelievably cool, awesome, and badass things. It just means that you're not going to be part of the 0.01% of the world that's an elite athlete, like with like the rest of us join the club. It's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we, one of the things that we do want to be careful of is not using things like these genetic tests to predict what someone should or shouldn't do when it comes to exercise. You know, I've had people ask me, oh, well, you know, I don't have, I don't, I don't have the endurance genes. Should I do more strength training? Well, no, absolutely not. If you like running run, right. It doesn't mean that running is bad for you or that you're going to hurt yourself doing it or or anything like that. It just means that you may not have a natural performance advantage. So it just means that you get to run even more (laughs) in order to get the result that you're looking for.
0: And likewise, if you've been told that you're supposed to be good at running and you hate it, first of all, welcome to this podcast. Second of all, you don't have to. You should spend the time that you have on this earth doing the things that you enjoy doing, whether or not you're genetically predisposed to be good at them. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Steph, tell us, tell us about this course that you have. Tell us where we can find
1: and follow you yeah absolutely so as you mentioned at the the beginning of this episode i am at steph the runner's dietitian there's a period in between all those on instagram so instagram is definitely where i hang out the most Uh, my website is www.stephanie.com and yeah I'm, i'm really excited to have turned my program into this uh fuel train recover course It has, um, you know, modules about nutrition, about training, strength training. We had a yoga instructor come on and do a yoga module for us, which was awesome. And then of course, recovery, the thing we all love to forget exists, but is still an important part of this whole process. Um, so yeah, it is open, it is available and it is ready for people to come and learn how to really optimize their running and reconnect with their love of the sport.
0: That's fantastic. And I'm going to link everything below in the show notes so you can find Steph, follow her, check out that course. Like I said, I think that most people would benefit from working with a dietitian. If you have any questions about how to fuel your body, performance, goals, all of that, a dietitian is always a good idea. And Steph, I know that you are really good at your job. So I hope people are interested and also thank want you. to work with you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank but you thank so you much
0: so much for your time again this is just this is a fa- fantastic conversation we're gonna have to make this a an annual event
1: yep yep can't wait for season three we'll, we'll plan for it already
0: perfect I'll see you then <laughs> bye